Welcome, I'm Nestor Flores, the pastor of Dayspring Church in Mission Hills, California. Thank you for tuning in to our podcast. I want to invite you to learn more about Dayspring Church by visiting our website, dayspringmh.org. We trust that if you open your heart, God will speak to you and you'll know how to live a life with God at the center that will result in a blessed life. This message will inspire, build your faith, and help you to know God better. Enjoy the message. Hey, would you grab your Bibles with me? We're going to jump into the message today. We're going to be reading in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 6, and we're going to start at verse 16. And as you get that ready, let me begin by asking the question, and it's the title of my message. Who is your audience? Let me stop for a few seconds. Who's your audience? You're probably thinking that that's not a question that applies to you. Maybe you're thinking, Pastor, that applies more to you. That applies to preachers. That applies to teachers. That applies to worship leaders. But, but, but no, not to me. Well, let me ask it a different way. Because I believe it does apply to all of us. It doesn't matter how old or how young you are. If you're a teenager, if you're a single mom, if you're a young adult, if you're elderly. We all have an audience. But let me ask that question in a different way. Who are you living for? As you go about your day, who do you have in mind? Who are you trying to please? Whose rejection do you fear the most? See, we all have an audience that we're living for. We all have an audience, somebody that we are trying to please. Let me tell you about the three main audiences. The first is obviously you. The second is others. And the third one is God. Now, we began this year with the series that we titled first. Remember it? Remember we talked about putting and keeping God first in our lives? And you would agree with me that in our culture, our culture is not very conducive to pleasing God, to making God our main audience or living for an audience of one. Our culture, our time is more conducive to being a narcissist. It's more conducive to being a people pleaser. And after all, it's so rewarding to try to please others, right? It's so nice to be able to receive approving smiles, to receive compliments in front of others, and to receive uh, gifts of congratulations. And those tokens, they make us feel uh, embraced. They make us feel noticed, and uh, they make us happy. So uh, no wonder so many people are trying to please others, because at the same time, they're trying to please themselves. I don't know if you would consider yourself a people pleaser. I definitely don't like to think that I'm a people pleaser, but I think we all at one time or another, or in some areas of our life, we are people pleasers. And and listen, if you're a people pleaser, we need to be able to redirect and focus our relationships. We need to go from a horizontal focus, from a horizontal approach where we try to please others and try to please ourselves to a vertical approach where we try to please God. In other words, here's what I'm saying. If you are more concerned in pleasing yourself or pleasing others, then you're not pleasing God. And many people think, well, if we please others, doesn't that please God? Sometimes, but not all the time. 
And it's not the same thing to try to please others to please God. And I want to talk to you today about living for an audience of one. You've probably heard that expression before, and I'd like to twist it a little bit. I'd like to add a little bit of uh, the nest or spice to it. And I want to talk to you about living for the audience of the one, the one. And in 2 Samuel, if you have your Bibles already open, now I know uh, that maybe when I say open your Bibles, most of you don't. You think, well, they're going to put it in the screen, but I really want to encourage you to open your Bibles. On Wednesdays, we want to get into God's Word. You know, I envision our church in front of the TV, not just with their phones while they're Googling and messing around on Facebook and Instagram. No, I picture our congregation in front of a TV listening to the message of God with their Bibles open and a pen on their hand where they're writing notes and they're really engaging. So, so that's my vision. That's what I'm praying for. And that's what I want to ask you to do. So if you haven't grabbed your Bible yet, pause this video, go find it. Uh, if you want to use the, the online one, you can, but just make sure that you do get into the word of God. And uh, if you would open it to Samuel chapter, second Samuel chapter six, we're going we're gonna to read that. But let me give you a little bit of context of what's going on here. There's a, something really important you need to know. The ark of the Lord or the Ark of the Covenant is symbolic of the presence of God. It was, it was the one artifact that in those times, the times before Jesus, the times before the day of Pentecost, it was what represented the presence of God. And the uh, peculiar thing about the Ark of the Lord is that it needed to be among God's people. But in this context, if you read a few uh, chapters before, the Ark of the Lord had been captured by the Philistines. And the Philistines had taken, and the Lord caused all kinds of tumors. It's actually a very interesting story for you to read. But eventually, they send the Ark back. They said, you know, let's send it back to the Israelites. It's, it's messing with us. It's ruining us. Let's send it back. And David, David wanted to bring the presence of the Lord back. David wanted to bring the ark of the Lord. So you can read that story. We're going to jump just into a few verses, but look at what the Bible says right there in 2 Samuel 6, 16. And then we're going to jump, jump all the way to verse 20. Look at what verse 16 says. But as the ark of the Lord entered the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, so Michal was the wife of David. That's another interesting story. Look down on her window. When she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she was filled with contempt for him. So David is coming into the city. He's bringing the ark of the Lord in and he's dancing. The Bible tells us that they were also offering sacrifices. But the, the focus here is on David and his dancing. And when Michal, his wife, the, the daughter of Saul, sees David dancing, the Bible tells us that she had contempt, that she despised him. Look at verse 20. Jump with me to verse 20 and look at what it says. When David returned home to bless his own family, Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet him. So she couldn't wait till he got inside. She, she went out to meet him. And she said in disgust, I'm reading from the New Living Translation. She said with disgust. How distinguished the king of Israel looked today. And obviously you can tell that she was being sarcastic. How distinguished the king of Israel looked today, shamelessly exposing himself to the servant girls 
like any vulgar son might do, like any vulgar person might do. David retorted or David responded to my call. I was dancing before the Lord who chose me above your father and all of his family. And that's kind of like one of those jabs that David throws. It's like, you know, he chose me above your father and anybody in your family. And he says, so I celebrated before the Lord. And look at what he says. This is so awesome. He says, yes. In other words, he's saying, yes, I kind of made a fool of myself. Yes, I understand that you could feel that way. He says, yes, and I am willing to look even more foolish than this. Even be humiliated in my own eyes. And here's what he's saying. What I did seemed foolish in your eyes, but not in my eyes. And I would be willing to even be foolish in what I would consider foolish if it meant pleasing God. And then he continues. But those servant girls you mentioned will indeed think I am distinguished. And what he means by that at the end is that Michal was saying, you know, those girls, they, they despised you. They, they, they didn't honor you. And David says, no, you're wrong because they do honor me. And see, Micah despised David for the way he danced, for the way he celebrated. And she accused him of exposing himself to others. Now, let me stop right there. Some commentary, some preachers believe that, that David was semi-naked as he was dancing before the Lord. I do not think so. I do not subscribe to that for two reasons. Number one, the Bible tells us about the character of David. And David was a man after God's own heart. And that doesn't mean he was incapable of doing that. But it just seems inconsistent with his character. But the second reason I don't think David was like semi-naked dancing was because the Bible tells us a few verses before that as David went to the house of Abedadom to get the, uh, the, the Ark of the Lord, that he put on the priestly garments and that he was wearing those priestly garments as he was coming in. So the problem that Micah had was that she thought that David shouldn't be wearing those priestly garments because he wasn't a priest. He was the king and should be wearing the, the, the royal uh, robe and not the priestly garments. See, the uh, priestly garments, the ephod, was a lot shorter than the uh, royal uh, cape or, or the royal wardrobe. And that's what she meant by exposing. So I, I, I don't believe that David was dancing semi-naked or naked. I think she was exaggerating. Now, let me tell you something about Michal. She was not jealous for her husband. She did not approach David about this situation because she was jealous for him. She told David and she felt the way she felt about this situation because she was prideful. Now, let me stop there and... Uh, I, I, if you've noticed by now, I'd like to get us to reflect because I think that's one of the proper responses to the word of God, to reflect in our lives and to bring the application into our lives. How would you have responded to Micah? How do you respond when someone calls your attention, when someone brings an issue about your character or personality? How do you respond do you get defensive? Do you get offensive? Do you respond rude? Are you rebellious? Are you dismissive? What is your answer? Let's look at how David 
responded. What was David's answer? And David's answer is found in verse 21. If you would read it again with me, that's why I wanted you to have your Bibles open. And look at what verse 21 says. It says, David retorted to Michael. Here's what he says. I was dancing before the Lord. David says, see, I was dancing before the Lord. And if you go back and you read verses 5 and verses 14, it also tells us that David was dancing before the Lord. Three times in this passage, it is mentioned that David's dancing was not for show, was not for anything else. He was rejoicing before the Lord. Do you know why David danced with such joy, with such abandonment, maybe with such exaggeration? Because the ark, the God's presence meant that much to him. The reason David danced and the reason that David celebrated the way he did is because the ark coming back to where it belonged meant that much to him. You know, I know this is, don't stone me for using this illustration, but, but I picture, I picture that I would probably uh, uh, experience something similar the day, and I believe that soon it will happen, the day the Dodgers win the World Series. You know, we were so close a few years back, game seven. And I remember it was happening during our midweek service and I was preaching. And inside of me, I said, hey, if they win, I don't care that I'm at church. I am going to jump. I am going to celebrate. But see, the Bible tells us that David was a man after God's own heart. So the presence of God, God himself, was the highest desire that David had. So when what he desired most was coming back where it belonged, was coming to be with him, was coming under his possession, if we could say that, David was experiencing the greatest joy that anyone could experience. And listen, here's the really awesome thing. David was a man that had many people looking up to him. David was a respected man. David was an honorable man. And while David had a whole nation looking to him, David only looked to one person, and that was God. He looked for God, and he lived before and for the audience of the one. Now, David didn't care what the crowds thought. He didn't care what the slave girls thought. He didn't care what even his wife thought. He didn't even mind what he thought about himself because David was dancing before the Lord. And David not only gives the big reason why he's willing to look foolish, but he says, he says, listen, he says, God chose me above Saul and he made me the leader of Israel. In other words, God gave me value when he chose me. He gave me value. And he also gave me purpose when he made me a leader. And the reason David danced, if if I could summarize for us, is that David learned to delight in God. Now, let me tell you this. Your audience matters. Your audience explains, and here's what another thing we learned from this passage. Your audience explains your behavior. Your audience justifies and explains why you behave the way you behave. David danced before the Lord. And when you understand that he was dancing before the Lord, then his behavior becomes understandable. You say, yes, absolutely. 
But Micah saw David dance before the people. See, the audience that David had in mind was God. The audience that his wife had was other people. So because she had other people in mind, the dancing was an incorrect behavior. And see, that's true of you as well. The reason you do certain things, the reason you don't do certain things is because of the audience that you're living for. It's because of the person or people that you're trying to please. That explains why you may or may not lift your hands. That explains why you may or may not be open about your faith. Your audience says a lot. Now, here's another thing that I would say before we jump into some applications or some more specific applications. You got to watch out. One of the other things that we learned from this passage is that you got to watch out for the my calls in your life. You got to watch out for those people that are going to try to make you feel bad when you are trying to please God. For people who are going to try to stop you from living for the audience of the one. And see, had David been like some of us, he would have said, all right, I just won't serve the Lord anymore because not even my wife appreciates it. Not even my wife supports me. And come on, come on, let, uh, let's be honest. And if you're single, um, uh, you know, give us a little bit of grace to those that are married. If you're married, you've probably had a situation like this where maybe you wanted to do something that God was putting in your heart. Maybe you wanted to serve the Lord. Maybe you wanted to get involved in some way. But your significant other was an obstacle to it. And instead of uh, pressing forward, you maybe said, well, you know, I might as well not do it because not even my spouse supports me. But that's not what David did. That's not the way David responded. In fact, if you keep reading the, the second Samuel, you'll find that in the next chapter, David planned to do even more for the Lord. He planned to build a temple for the Lord. So here's what I want to do. I want to talk to you about four things that you can do to please God. I believe that that should be the goal of every Christian. Our life belongs to him. Now, before I give them to you, here's what you need to know. Living to please God is a relational language. Let me say that again, because I really want you to understand that young people, teenagers, listen to me. Pleasing God is not about doing one or two things per week, having one or two commitments per week, and say, well, I kind of checked that off, so God needs to be happy with me. No, 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 no. God is not interested in you doing one or two things. Pleasing God is a relational language. It's about a relationship. It's about an intimacy. It's about a dynamic approach. It's about living to please God. And that is what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.1. Let's read what it says. Look at what it says. Dear brothers and sisters, we urge you in the name of the Lord Jesus to live in a way that pleases God. He says, live in a way that pleases God. So how can we live in a way that pleases God? Four things. Here's the first one. If you want to please God, you got to live by faith. You got to live by faith. Hebrews eleven six tells us the following. And it is impossible to please God without faith. Did you get that? 
I know we're doing a series on Sundays about hope and faith, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. But, but I do think that it is fitting for this topic, so I wanted to bring it up. And he says, and it is impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to him, anyone who wants to have a relationship, must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. Now, faith, and I'm not going to say much, as I mentioned, but faith is believing in God. But faith is also believing God. See, many can't please God. Many can't live in a way that pleases God because they don't believe God. They don't take serious what he says. They don't take serious the promises that he's made. And listen, when we take God at his word, we please him. We please him in faith. Faith is that motor in our lives that will propel us, that will energize us to be able to please God. And if you want to live for the audience of the one, we got to live by faith. Number two, if you want to please God, you got to live seeking his will. You got to live seeking his will. Romans 12, 2, a very well-known passage tells us, don't copy the behaviors and customs of this world, but let God transform you. Let, let me stop right there. Do not copy the behaviors and customs of this world. In other words, don't live for yourself and don't live to please others. He says, but let God transform you into a new person. Isn't that what we all want? Or at least what we want for those around us? Right? We want God to transform our wives. We want God to transform our kids. We want God to transform our bosses. We want God to transform our mother-in-law. God, please transform her. But listen, that happens when our thinking is renewed. And let's keep reading. But let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. And look at what happens. Then you will learn to know God's will for you. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good, pleasing, and perfect. Let me make a little pause here because I need to wipe my sweat. I just, I just want to take a few seconds to say that I appreciate the love that all of you guys sent me on Sunday where you said, Pastor, it looked like you were burning up there, and I was. I want to explain a little bit to you. When we got to the room to record, uh, they had just turned on the AC, so it was really hot in there, plus the stage lights, plus those of you that know me know that I sweat just by thinking. So <laughs> I really felt the love, but but I'm, I'm going to be all right. I'm working out to be able to wear uh, something uh, not as, as warm, uh, uh, but thank you. I, I just felt the love, and I was able to laugh by seeing my sweaty uh, self up on TV, but I, I just want to say that, that I appreciate the love that you guys express. So let's get back to this. Living to seek his will. Let me talk to those of you that are parents. Question. What's more pleasing? When your kids do what you say, or when they do what they want? What's more pleasing? I don't know, it's a really rhetorical, dumb question. See, most parents, and I gotta say most parents, because truth is there are some bad parents out there, but most of us parents that are trying to be good, when we ask our kids to do something, when we set guidelines, we have our kids' well-being in mind. We have our kids' best in mind. 
right? And that's why we set those restrictions. That's why we say, no, you can't be out that late. Or no, don't drive this way. Or no, don't hang out with those people. Or no, don't use your money that way. Because we have their well-being in mind. Now, no pairing is perfect. Well, we may be well-intended. No parent has perfect rules. No parent gets it right every time. And while our will for our kids or our desire, but let me use our will because that's what we're talking about. While our will as parents can often be corrupted and it can because at times we ask and we set guidelines out of laziness, out of anger, or, or just being hasty, right? So we can get it wrong. Here's what you need to know about your heavenly father. God's will for you is always, and let me emphasize always, God's will for you is always good. It's always good for you and it's always good for others. See, most of what we consider good for us is not good for others. But what God wants for you is good not just for you but for others. But the second thing that Paul says about God's will is that it's pleasing. And let me give you a secret. Let me tell you something that the Bible teaches. When you learn to please God, you will find pleasure for yourself as well. What brings glory to God brings joy to us. So God's will is good, it's pleasing, and it's perfect. In other words, he knows best. Now, I know some of you are thinking, Pastor, how can I know God's will for me? And I want, to, I want you to know that God's will for us can be known. A lot of times we talk about it in a mysterious way, like kind of like we got to decipher, you know, and only after being a Christian for 40 years and living sinless for two years, then God reveals his will. No, 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 no. God's will is revealed and God wants you to know his will for your life. And I want you to think about the way God responds to our questions, how God reveals his will in the way of a traffic light. A traffic light has three lights. The red, which means sometimes God says stop, or God says no. And he reveals his will with the red light by saying stop or no. But at other times, he reveals his will through the green light, where he says go, or he says yes. What about when God doesn't say no, but he doesn't say yes? Well, he uses the yellow light. In the yellow light, he says, stay. Or he says, not yet. Or he says, yes, but wait. And see, God reveals his will in three main ways. There's a couple of other ways. For example, dreams is a way that God reveals his will. But I want to tell you the three main ways that God reveals his will for you. How you can learn to know God's will for you. Number one is his word. And that is the main one. God's written word is there for you to know his will. It's one of the many benefits of spending daily time in the word of God because his word will tells you will tell you what he wants for you. But the second way is through prayer. And you may be wondering, well, pastor, how does prayer reveal God's will for you? Well, if you've ever prayed, if you've ever truly prayed, you know that prayer is not just about telling God what we want. But when we pray, when we spend time with God, he shapes our desires. He shapes our thoughts. He talks to us. Listen, there's many times where I've been in prayer and God has revealed his will by placing desires, by placing ideas, by placing a specific word in my being. 
And the third way that God also reveals his will is through circumstances. God uses circumstances. It's not always the main one, but God does use circumstances to reveal his will. Now, some live for their own desires. Many, you know, sadly, many people are not living for the will of God. They're living for themselves, and they're trying to accomplish something. They're trying to become someone. And and here's what I want to say. You know, there are things that others will consider as high achievements, as meaningful achievements, that have no value in the eyes of God. You know what success is? Success is not reaching the top of the corporate ladder or or reaching the 1% financially. Success is knowing God's will and doing God's will. That's what success is. Can I confess something to you? I may not be a successful person in the eyes of many people because I'm not well-known, because we don't have thousands and thousands of people connecting to hear me speak. And I may not be successful in the eyes of many people, but can I tell you something? I consider myself a successful person. You know why? Because I learned when I was a teenager that God's will for me was that I would serve him in ministry, specifically as a pastor. And that's what I'm doing. And when I... When I live out my role that God created me for, I am successful in his eyes. So let's look at the fourth one. At the third one, if you want to please God, the third thing is that you got to live in holiness. You got to live not just in faith, you got to live not just seeking God's will, but you got to live in holiness. Look at what 1 Thessalonians 4 3 says. It says, God's will for you is to what? To be holy. God's will for you. So we already spoke about God's will. See, you see why you getting into God's word reveals God's will for us. God's will for you is to be holy. Now, holiness is not perfection. Holiness is separation. Holiness is dedication. To be holy means that you are set apart for someone or for a specific use. Holiness means exclusivity when we talk about pleasing God. Holiness means that, that, that we don't um, share ourselves with anybody else. The Bible tells us this. Listen, I don't know if you know this. Most of you guys may know this. The Bible says that God is a jealous God. In other words, God doesn't want to share you. God doesn't want to be a side chick. God doesn't want to be your, your second uh, husband or, or your second God. No, no, no. He wants exclusivity, and that's what holiness means. Holiness means that you dedicate, that you separate, that you make yourself exclusive for God. And listen, here's what you need to know about holiness. We can't make ourselves holy. Holiness is not the product of uh, our efforts. Holiness, that's the work of God in Christ through the Holy Spirit in us. And the only hope that we have towards holiness is the work of the Holy Spirit that indwells us. And while we cannot make ourselves holy, it is God who makes us holy. It is our job to walk in holiness. See, let me explain it this way. We were not able to break the chains of sin and death in our life. The Bible tells us that before we came to Christ, that we were slaves to sin, that we were uh, captive by sin. But when Christ died and we accepted him, he broke that rule. He broke that power of sin, death, and destruction in our lives. We couldn't do it, but he did. 
And now it is our job to walk in that freedom. It is our job to not go back to our old master. It is our job to not go back to our old sinful ways, but to walk in that holiness that he bought for us, to walk in that holiness that he is working in us. Look at what Romans 12, 1 says. And so, dear brothers and sisters, right? Because it's not just for guys, it's also for ladies. I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all that he has done for you. In other words, don't just give God your thoughts. Don't just give God your desires. Don't just give God your intentions. He says, give him your body. See, it's very different to say, you know, I really want to be holy for God. And to say, I'm going to be holy for God. And, and, and we're told here, Paul tells us here, that we ought to offer our bodies. And look at what he says. To offer it because of all that he has done. And he says, let your bodies, let the way you live, be a living and holy sacrifice. The kind that he will find acceptable, the kind that pleases him. This is truly the way to worship. I love that expression. Living and holy sacrifice. Living means that it's continuous, that it's dynamic, that it's not just uh, uh, an exclusive part of our life on Sundays at 9.30 or Wednesdays at 7. No, it's continuous, it's dynamic and holy, that it's dedicated, that it's exclusive and sacrifice because it's costly. And it is costly to walk in holiness. It was costly for Jesus to make us holy. It was costly for God to make us holy. And it'll cost us to stay holy and walk in holiness. And then last but not least, if you want to please God, you got to live serving God's purposes. You got to live serving, you got to live to serve God's purposes. Let me share a quote with you. Who you are trying to please can be identified by who you are serving. That whoever you're trying to serve is the person that you're trying to please. And if you want to please God, you got to serve God's purposes, and God has a purpose for this world. Not only does God have a will for you, but God has a will, has a purpose for humanity, has, has a purpose, has a plan for everyone. Look at what Galatians 1.10 says. I'm obvious, obviously, he says, Paul says, obviously, I'm not trying to win the approval of people. But of God, if pleasing people were my goal, I would not be Christ's servant. And Paul says in this passage that if he was trying to please people, if he was trying, that if he were to be a people pleaser, that then he could not serve God. You cannot seek to please people and serve God. But you can also not say that you want to please God and not serve his purposes. Now, I want you to notice that this is my last point. That serving God's purposes, I left it as my last point intentionally. Because it comes after having a relationship with God by faith, seeking His will for your life, and living in holiness. See, it's easy. But it's not the same to think that just because you serve God, you are pleasing God. It's easy, but it's not the same. But it's also not correct to think that we don't have to serve God, that we don't have to serve His purposes. Neither of those are are correct. And see, 
There's going to be times when serving God's purposes will mean that you have to please others. There will be times, yes. God will ask you to do things for others because He wants you to do them. But I want you to understand this. Being a good Christian, being a strong Christian, doesn't always mean pleasing others. There are times when pleasing God means pleasing others. And there's times when pleasing God does not mean pleasing others. And I know what you're thinking because you're really smart people. How can I know the difference? How can I know when to please others? And how, when it, how can I know when pleasing God that means not pleasing others? Well, Paul is a perfect example. And I'll finish up with this. Paul, in one occasion, and we're going to look at those, he says that he tries to please people. But then in another occasion, he says that he doesn't try to please people. And just in case you're thinking, well, maybe there are different Greek words that are translated as please. No, no, no. In the Greek, it is the same word. Okay? To the Corinthians, he says in 1 Corinthians 10, 32 and 33, look at what he says. He says, don't give offense to Jews or Gentiles or the church of God. He says, I too try to please everyone in everything I do. He says, I, he says, try to please others. He says, I try to please others. I try to please everyone in everything I do. I don't just do what is best for me. I do what is best for others so that many might be saved. But then to the Galatians, in Galatians 1.10, he says the following. He says, obviously, I'm not trying to win the approval of people, but of God. And this is the verse that we read at the beginning of this fourth point. And he says, if pleasing people were my goal, I would not be Christ's servant. So, which one is it, Paul? Do we please people or do we not please people? Well, to understand why in one case he says we ought to please people and why in another case he, he says we shouldn't please people, you have to understand the context of what's going on when he says that. See, when Paul called Timothy to serve alongside with him, he had him circumcised. And this is one of those cases where he pleased people. Why, why did Paul circumcise Timothy when he didn't have to? Well, let's read in Acts 16.3. Look at what it says. Paul wanted to take him along, and it's talking about Timothy, on the journey. So he circumcised them uh, because of the Jews who lived in that area. So there was Jews. There were people who, had, who hadn't come to Jesus, who hadn't come to the way. And, and, and he was going to go evangelize in that area. And he says, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So in this case, Timothy had the right to get circumcised or not. And because Paul didn't want his... Uh, evangelistic efforts to be hindered, he had him circumcised. But then, in, when it came to Jerusalem, when it came to another instance, there were, there, there were people who were requiring circumcision as an act or as a process of salvation. And they said, in order to be saved, you got to be circumcised. And Paul didn't comply with them in this case. And look at what Galatians 2.2 tells us. It says, yet, not even Titus who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. So why is it that on this occasion, Paul doesn't seek to please 
the people? Well, he answers why in verse 5 of the same passage. And look at what it says. He says, we did not give into them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. See, in one case, Paul says, yes, we go ahead and please people because it's going to it's going to it's going to remove a barrier to the gospel being shared. But in another case, he says, no, we're not going to please people because pleasing them means that we are deluding, that we are changing the gospel. See, what should determine when we please people or not is the gospel. It's serving God's purpose. And there's no greater purpose than telling those that don't know about Jesus about Jesus. There's no greater purpose than taking the good news to the lost. And if it means removing obstacles so that those that don't don't know Jesus can come to know him, well, then we do what we can to please them. But never at the expense of putting the, the gospel, putting the wholeness of the gospel at risk. I want to conclude with this. God is not looking for perfection. God is looking for your affection and your attention. God is looking for you to live in faith. God is not looking for perfection. He's looking for us to desire to obey him by seeking his will for us. God is not looking for perfection. He's looking for us to walk in his freedom, to walk in holiness, in exclusivity, in separation. God is looking for us to save others by serving his purpose. And see, the abundant life will come to us when we live for the audience of the one. So who's your audience? You know, in this time of quarantine, I think we really have a big opportunity to make God our focus. Many distractions have been removed. Many things have been taken out of the way. So I want to encourage you. I want to invite you. I want to tell you as your pastor that your audience should not be anyone else, should not even be you, should be God. So here's what I want you to do. I want to ask you, I don't know what God or the Holy Spirit are going to nudge you to do, but I believe they're going to nudge you to do something. They're going to bring some kind of conviction, not condemnation, conviction. And there's going to be something that they're going to point out to you in all that I've said. And I want to invite you to act on it. I want to invite you to live for the audience of one, the one. We hope you enjoyed this message. But before you go, we want to extend an invitation to start a personal relationship with Jesus and declare him your God. No one loves you like Jesus and no one will impact your life for good like Jesus will. Would you make the following prayer your prayer? Heavenly Father, I repent of my wrongdoing. I open my heart, and I want to have a personal relationship with you. I trust that Jesus died so I could be forgiven, but he didn't stay dead. He rose back to life so I could have eternal life. From today on, I will follow you, transform my life through your truth and love. In Jesus' name, amen. Congratulations. If you made that prayer, God lives in you and now you have a new life in him. Connect to a church so your faith and love for God can continue to grow. We believe that you can find a loving and encouraging community in Day Spring Church. Come visit us. You belong here. We would love to meet you.